Our reading this morning is from Isaiah chapter 65, beginning at verse 17, and you'll find this on page 753. New heavens and a new earth. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Jesus, you are our living word. You know everything about us. I ask this morning as we come before you that, that you would meet us where we are. For those of us who need comfort, those of us who need to know your love, that we'd experience that. For those of us who need to hear from you, we're lost and we need to be put on the right side. For those who have, have been broken that need to be put out, you'll need to know your healing touch. Father, would you have your way amongst us? We recognize our need of you this morning. Would you meet us with power that changes our lives? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't know um, what it is that on a day-by-day -day basis brings a smile to your face, brings a certain joy to you. You know, looking at the sun, coming through the windows, 
falling on a few of you uh, who may find it difficult to see me. It's beautiful when we see the sun, maybe it's creation, we see a beautiful sunset or a beautiful view that really lifts us and brings life to us. There are sometimes funny things that uh, bring smiles to our face. I was reminded this week as I started to see the Winter Olympics starting that I find ski jumping peculiarly fascinating. I don't know whether it goes back to Eddie the Eagle Edwards or it's something about the fact of people throwing themselves off a hill and trying to land 100 meters down. It's sort of a peculiarly fascinating thing. Some of you smilingly, some of you looking like, please take him away. Uh, but, but actually, the reality is there are different things that do that. We're coming to the end. We're going to finish this morning our series on what it means to be fully alive. And today I want to move from a discussion about what it means to be fully alive as an individual to what it means to be fully alive as a community and beyond the community to the world. We've talked about being spiritually alive. We've talked about being physically alive. We've talked about being relationally alive. We've talked about being emotionally alive and financially alive. But I want to think about the communities around us and the world around us. What would it look? What would it look like? if the world became fully alive? What would it look like to see a community fully alive? As Daniel courageously said at the beginning, you don't need to scratch the surface of either our personal lives or the lives of the people you will spend time with to know that there is brokenness. There is something wrong in the world. All is not fine. Suffering is real. Bad things happen. Whether it's people in your family or uh, in your work or whatever it is, or whether you look, maybe it is, you look at the situation, you bemoan the situation of the state, of whether you're a Brexiteer or a Remainer, that the political system seems so broken, that who, you know, who do you believe? Who'd you turn to? Life, the world, our community don't operate like a Swiss watch where we think everything is perfection. That's not the way the world is. Now, every day we read in the papers, if you're unsure of that and you, you'd keep up to date with the news, you'll see that there are stories of more and more younger generation people caught up, maybe not just the younger generation, and life of drugs, and you only need to walk through our city to see that. People whose marriages or relationships collapse. People who get into greater debt. We see businesses with all sorts of practice that's really difficult and challenging. We see the growth in mental health problems. We see isolation increasing. And it's easy if we spend our time with those, in those situations or with those people even, to think that we are powerless and things are hopeless. And we become people who subconsciously or even consciously act and behave like people without hope. The world isn't work as it should. It's hopeless. What do we do about it? Our communities aren't working the way it should. People aren't interested or engaged in the issues like they should be or whatever else it might be. So why is that? Why is that? One of the ways the Bible 
describes that current situation is the loss of shalom. It's about the loss of shalom. What is shalom? What's been lost? Our reading from the book of Isaiah, and if you want to have it open in front of you, that help captures that beautifully. See, the Jews had a picture for what the prophet Isaiah is describing in his painting, and that word is shalom. The root meaning of the word of shalom is whole, to be whole, or to be sound. Shalom speaks of completeness. It uh, speaks of being fulfilled. It speaks of being well, of well-being, of tranquility, of flourishing, of prospering, and of peace. The word shalom, as many of you will know, is still used as a greeting in Israel today. It's where we do that thing in communion where we share the peace together and we say, the peace of the Lord be always with you, and you say, peace be with you. It actually generates and started and comes from that place. It's the idea that we're being blessed and we're passing on God's blessing to others. That we're living a life under God and through God of blessing others, of bringing peace to others. Where peace is not just the absence of conflict, but it's God's rule and reign. If you're wondering what that's about, let me uh, give you the writers of a current theologian and writer, someone called uh, Cornelius Plantinger, and he uh, puts it this way. The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which needs are satisfied and gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder at its creator and saviour and opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be to be. Shalom is the way things ought to be. So what, for example, might be a current understanding or anticipation of shalom? If we're to update that picture of Isaiah's, of a lion lying down with a lamb, what does shalom look like to you? What do you imagine when you say that? What does wholeness, flourishing, completeness mean to you? Well, for example, it might mean that there's no children's hospital, but a beautiful, creative play area for them. What would the world look like when Shalom comes? Imagine someone from the British National Party marrying the student leader of the Hunt Saboteurs, and then kneeling together as they gratefully receive communion, both confessing Jesus as their Lord and Savior at their wedding ceremony. Shalom is not just middle-class tax cuts or England winning the World Cup in all the sports. For those of us who'd like to think that that's what shalom actually means, morning to my Welsh friends this morning, uh, or a beautiful new house or a sports car that you'd like or a musical instrument that you've always dreamed of. Although, when we're honest, some of those things would be quite nice, wouldn't they? Let's be honest, we think about it like that. 
Shalom is a radical change in the entire culture so that no one, for example, would be addicted to drugs to dull the pain that they're experiencing in their lives. Shalom is grandparents living long, healthy, productive lives where they're respected as sources of counsel and wisdom right until the end. Shalom is where children of whatever background have incredible futures, grow up healthy, grow up fulfilled, and they're free of childhood trauma. Shalom, in short, is a world fully alive. Shalom is the way things ought to be and God wants them to be. So where does shalom come from? Does the government have the power to create shalom? Does shalom come from our school teachers or our parents? Does it come from uh, uh, the scientists in a laboratory who can go and create shalom in some ways? Can really bright scientists take us to that place of shalom? So what does the prophet say is the source of shalom here in Isaiah 65? To whom must we look for that shalom? Here's what we read in verse 17 of the passage in front of you. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. The Hebrew word that the prophet uses three times, which is translated in English as create, is bara. It's the same word used in the first verse of Genesis, in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this word bara, which means create, it's a special word in Hebrew. It's in the Hebrew Bible. And it's the word that's only used of God. We often talk about creativity, about an artist creating a great work of art or musicians producing something, a beautiful musical masterpiece, a chef creating a wonderful dish. But in the Bible, the word bara, to create, is only used of God. See, it's only God who can make something out of nothing. It's only God who can give life to something that's dead. Only God can bring hope where there's total and utter despair. We human beings, we can shape stuff. We can shape the raw material that God gives us. But only God doesn't need the raw material. Only God truly creates. When we're looking for shalom, life maybe in a dead marriage or a dead relationship, hope where you may be completely bound in addiction this morning, healing for when the doctors maybe have given up on you and said there's nothing more they can do for you. The prophet tells us that shalom requires the intervention of God. Shalom is not man-made. Shalom requires God to act, to stretch out God's hand God to break in, God to intervene. And that's precisely what this week is about, the inbreaking of God, the intervention of God. 
This week, um, we're talking about the fact that God inaugurated a kingdom of shalom. You know um, what a shalom, or what inauguration means? It's like the beginning of something. So we see it maybe when a president is inaugurated or at the beginning of a new term of something. A new trade deal with Europe or with some of our partners, we talk about a trade deal being inaugurated. And that means we're beginning something new. And as we begin our journey towards Easter during this week, we talk about the kingdom that was inaugurated 2,000 years ago. As we enter the season of Lent and move towards Easter, towards Jesus' death and his, his resurrection, it was to announce the inauguration of Shalom, a peace that, bring, that God would bring into his world when the Prince of Peace Jesus of Nazareth would hang on a cross and bear all the sin, all the brokenness, all the lostness, all the disease, all the sickness, all that's broken, all that's lost, and he would take it all on himself. So you and I and the whole world would know peace through the Lord Jesus Christ. As we journey towards Easter, it's an announcement of the coming peace through the death of the Prince of Peace on a cross and his glorious resurrection on Easter Sunday in which he conquered the enemy of Shalom, namely death, sin, and Satan. So what does Shalom feel like? When life works the way it should, we may be able to identify with all that's broken and see that. But how do we say what's Contra to that, what does it look like to have a vision of something that's greater, better than that? Look at verse 18 and verse 19 of the passage in front of you. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. This is as we experience God, his shalom. The Bible has a word for what shalom feels like, and that word is joy. It's what we'd spent time at Christmas thinking about. It's when we experience joy that we experience it's a mark of delight of shalom. You may say, well, give me a picture of that. This may not appeal to you this morning particularly, but a friend of mine um, that I knew at university was an ultra-Orthodox Jew. And this is how he described his brother's wedding. He said, my brother weighs over 200 pounds. At his wedding reception, four men carried him on a huge chair that was hoisted high up in the air. Four other men did the same thing with his bride. They carried them into the reception hall together. It was like they were carried in on thrones into this reception. And this huge Jewish butcher then picked up my brother and started to dance with him and put him on his shoulders and he started to dance with him on his shoulders. And then the rabbi who was wearing one of those uh, black rimmed hats with a wide brim, he poured brandy on his hat and he set it on fire and he danced around his hat with, on fire. Now that... I would suggest to you, is a picture of joy. That is a picture of celebration. 
That's a little bit like what joy looks like. This friend went went on, and bear in mind he's only about 19 or 20, then went on to describe the first Christian wedding he went to. He didn't eat before he went to his first Christian wedding. He was used to Jewish weddings that were a great feast and a great celebration. And he couldn't wait for the ceremony to be over, the, the kind of Christian bit of it to be over, as he'd get on and have a fantastic celebration and meal. His description was that he went down into a church basement that was dimly lit and discovers that how some Christians do their weddings. There were a few older people who served punch in plastic cups from a large bowl. And, uh, and they then served little, in these little bowls, they then served mints and nuts in them. That was the meal. They stood there eating mints and nuts, eating like gerbils. We ate then a small piece of wedding cake, and then we all left. And his voice to me then, his voice to me said, that's when I learned how for some Christians, that's what a great party looks like. And this is really bizarre for us as Christians, because when we look at Jesus' life and we pay close attention in the Gospels to where Jesus was, what he did, and where he was, you would often find, and you often find Jesus at the center of a party. One of the most striking things is how often he's at a party. When Jesus called Matthew, the tax collector, into relationship with himself, Matthew threw a big party for his tax collector friends. Now, that's a party not everybody would want to go to. And they'd say, come and meet with Jesus too. He said to his friends, come and join and meet with Jesus. They feasted together and there was joy. Jesus' first miracle was performed at a wedding in Cana in Galilee where he turned punch into nuts and mints in a little bowl. No, he turned water into wine. That's what he did. He turned water into wine. And they celebrated all night. Over and over again in the New Testament, Jesus is seen at the great festivals and the great celebrations where he performs miracles and all sorts of things. He was invited to parties at the center of a party. There was all kinds of feasting. Uh, It was a heart of celebration and joy. Jesus inaugurated this shalom, this kingdom of shalom that began through his death and ultimately his resurrection. But how is it displayed? How do we see that in the real world? How do we see that in the real world today? I think I just briefly want to say three things for us who are followers of Jesus, that can we do to be people of shalom? We are called to be people of shalom. The first thing is that we are the peace. We're called to be peace. Not called to talk about peace. We're called to live and be peace. That's the prime, one of our primary calling. And Jesus is displayed uh, shalom with us in our families, in our groups, our classrooms, our neighborhoods, and our workplaces. We are a carrier of the kingdom of peace and the places where we go to. And the difference between being a Christian and being a non-Christian is not that Christians don't have trouble or hardship. You know, we don't get a, that doesn't prevent us from going through all the kind of human experiences. Jesus says there'll be trouble in this world. We may lose our jobs. We might, just like anybody else, 
We may go through all sorts of family troubles, just like anybody else. We may have all sorts of relationship challenges, just like anybody else. We may have disputes with kind of business people, with other people, just like anybody else. We may have sickness challenges, just like anybody else. Being a Christian doesn't guarantee that your train won't be delayed or that someone won't be mad at you because of what you did and how you did it. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is that when we go through difficulties, we go through it with God, not without him. God is present with us. We're Christians who are and carry hope in us and through us. Because we are with God. We, he is our peace. He is our shalom. It's not just what the doctors say or the experts say. Our peace is rooted in the fact that God is with us. God is with us. God is for us. What does the psalmist say in Psalm 23? As Daniel shared, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me. Thou art with me. Thou art with me. Thou art with me. Some of you this morning who feel very alone need to hear what God says to you. Thou art with me. God is with you in all that you're going through. He's not left you. He's not forsaken you. He's with you. So firstly, be to peace. Secondly, we're called to pray for peace. Hear what we read in Jeremiah 29, 7. It's a verse I think, for me, is a verse on my heart for us as a church and uh, our relationship to both the parish and for the city. It says, Also seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers you too will prosper. The word peace is shalom. Seek the shalom, seek the blessing, seek the prosperity, seek the flourishing of the city and those in this community uh, and in Bath. We've got this season over Lent where we can pray for the city. God says if your community prospers, your children will prosper too. If the world we live in becomes fully alive, then we will also become fully alive. So be the peace, pray for peace. Then finally, we're called to spread the peace. As a church, I know reasonably well, I was looking through some of the things they write recently, and I read there, this was their mission statement for them as a church. Our mission is to develop a community of disciples who experience God, love one another, and partner with Christ to heal the world. I like that. I think there's a lot in that that's great. We partner with Christ to bring shalom to the world. We bring wholeness to the world. We bring healing to the world. We bring completeness to the world. We bring blessing to the world. Wherever there's an absence of blessing or an absence of shalom. We do this at St. Andrew's School. We do this with our work at Snow Hill. We do this with the businesses in our parishes with the homes in our parishes. We do this through the work of the cafe. We do this through the work partnering with other agencies like street pastors 
and Genesis. We do it by hosting events in this place. We long and want to bring shalom, locally but also globally. We partner with missionaries across the world and have done for generations, for ages. In Africa, Asia, Europe, the Americas, we, as followers of Jesus, we're called to spread shalom, the blessing of God, not to be static, but it goes out from us to others. The peace of God, the presence of God, the healing of God globally. As a church, we have a history of that, but also we are committed to do this. All of us has a part to play in bringing God's peace, God's blessing to a hurting parish, to a hurting city, and to a hurting world. Creation, the Bible says, is groaning and longing for God to meet us. Will you play your part and join in to partner with God to bring shalom the world that longs to meet with God. So the world begins to look like God intended it to be. Fully alive. Really alive. Let's pray. Come, Holy Spirit, I pray. Fall afresh on us. Pray that we would hear your voice again. You would free us again. We would meet with you afresh where we've lost hope, we've lost joy. We've lost our peace. Would you fall afresh on our lives, we pray. Not just so that we can experience peace for ourselves, but that we can spread that peace, that good news of Jesus, to all those around us. Father, thank you that you come to us that your grace is sufficient for us in all our circumstances. Would your kingdom come? Would your will be done in our lives, both today and this week? In Jesus' name, amen. In response, we're going to sing. Um, if you've come this morning and you know there's some areas of your life that you have lost hope in and you'd love someone to pray for you, um, do either come to the front, my, my right, my right, your left, sometime during the service or after the service, and someone would love to pray for you. If you know you're struggling and you long for God to come and meet with you, we are there to be an encouragement to each other, to hold each other and support each other in all of experience. 
So do seek someone out or come, at the, come to the front if you'd like someone to pray for you.